Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. It's like keeping people happy and being happy myself. I figured, man, I figured I was reincarnated and, you know, I came back to do something. Because before, I seemed like... I feel to myself, I think I died at an early age before, and I wasn't too happy, and everybody else wasn't happy, so I figure I came back now to make everybody happy, make everybody money, and be happy. That's what I think myself. Wow. That was easy e when asked about the impact he thought he had on the world. Kind of eerie when you think of it. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb, and this is the story of Eazy-E and N.W.A. Part 2, How Things Fell Apart. Do you have a long-time girlfriend or wife? I got friends. Do you have one or several? I got one. You got one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is she the mother of your child? <laughs> yeah, my mother is my child. My mother is my child right now, but you know. She's not I the have, same. I have friends, man. I don't put that in the magazine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you use condoms? Hell yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not just going to go and fuck around with nobody. And I saw I have a gang of pills or something. I'm, I don't want to fuck around with no AIDS or herpes and no shit like that. Yeah. When I last left you, it was 1989. And in two short years, Ruthless Records had sold millions of albums. They were now household names across the country, and everyone was feeling the energy shift of what they were doing. Up until that point, the center of hip-hop was always New York City. There were many so-called explicit rappers, but not many to the degree of N.W.A. And Dr. Dre was viewed as a formidable producer. He was definitely on another level and things were shifting west. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, we were really starting to feel this change. The music was in a rut. Everybody was sounding the same, making records for radio instead of just making the art and radio responding. After the release of their debut album, People's Instinctive Travels and The Path and Rhythm, a Tribe Called Quest's Q-Tip, who, like Dre, produced and rapped, felt the impact of Straight Outta Compton, and it challenged him production-wise in the creation of their sophomore album, The Low End Theory. When I heard Straight Outta Compton, I was just like, wow. And I remember driving with Ali, I was like, yo, we got to make some shit like like this, like to hear that shit. And we just, we were kind of like one of the few people in New York riding around listening to that. The energy of it. And they were dealing with dynamics as well. And it had, it was frenetic, but the way, but Dre is such a master, like the way that it was laid out. He took what P.E. was kind of doing, but he got to that whole bomb squad mentality a little bit before. And he just, the tapestry that he laid out for those things. It was just still to this day, like I just get chills. After you hear all the frills, the musical frills of that album, you know, the sections and the rhymes, the interplay between the MCs, between Cube and Easy and the, the, the scratches, after you hear all of that, when it's off, what resonated was just that bottom, that bass and the drive of it. I was like, yo, we gotta make some shit, be like, but still maintain our thing, you know? Although, from the outside, things were looking good for Ruthless Records, on the business side, things were far from good. When the group released Straight Outta Compton, there was not formal contracts in place for group members. Ice Cube did a lot of the writing on the album. Arabian Prince did a lot of the production with Dre, and neither were paid or acknowledged. 
but Ice Cube kept inquiring about his contract with Jerry Heller. He would also talk to the group members about the contract. This was all while they were on their first national tour, and it was becoming tense. When he was finally offered a contract, he was asked to sign and a check was dangled, but not giving him the contract, just literally showing it to him and saying, sign and we'll give you the check. Jerry Heller wouldn't allow him to see the contract which is absurd in any kind of business relationship. As the tour bus pulled back into L.A., Ice Cube walked away from N.W.A. Jerry talked to Easy, and Easy, you know, he was the head of everything. So once Easy was against me, you know, Jerry convinced Easy I was a troublemaker. So then Easy started to talk to everybody, and then you know, pretty soon I was the odd man out. I left because I was like, this ain't gonna work. They're not going to fix it. You know, all he had to do was fix it. You know, at the end of the day, he was trying to get me to sign a contract that my lawyer never read. So to me, that's bad business. And it's a bad contract. You don't want my lawyer to even look at it. And you know, I have a lawyer. He kept ducking me and saying, you know, uh, I'll send it, I'll send it, I'll send it. Before I had the lawyer, before I told him I had the lawyer, I had the lawyer, but I didn't tell him. I was just trying to get the contract. So I told him, I said, just send it to my mama. So I thought he was going to think, all right, send it to her. She ain't going to know what she's looking at. They're going to sign it, and I'm going to get it back. But he wouldn't even send it to her. I'm like, man, damn, you won't even send it to her? We knew something was fishy. Like, if he can't send us the contracts, he definitely can't sign nothing. He would find out that all the other members signed their contracts except him, and he was trying to help them get their money. I had offered... Whatever my lawyer tell me, I'm going to tell you guys. My lawyer is like, y'all lawyer, y'all don't have to get a lawyer if you don't want to. I would advise you to, but I'll tell y'all what he's telling me. So I would, you know, talk with Ren a lot. Me and Ren the same age. We was the youngest in the group. And uh, so Ren knew everything that, uh, that my lawyer was telling me, which was don't sign nothing. In the Straight Outta Compton movie, they portrayed the Jerry Easy relationship as very cozy. There was this one scene when Easy and Jerry were eating lobster at lunch and Cube was coming back to the hotel with fast food. Cube noticed something was off and Jerry noticed that Cube was going to be a problem. I knew Ice Cube peripherally before I met Easy, but he was younger. Easy was my guy. I mean, I hung out with Easy. Ice Cube was just a member of the group. And Ice Cube can talk about how he wrote all the lyrics, but if you look at every NWA song, there's only one person that did everything on every, uh, did something on every single NWA song. And that was Andre Romel Young, Dr. Dre. He wrote the music for every song that ever came out on Ruthless. The lyrics, each guy wrote his own lyrics. So if you look at these songs that he claims that he wrote, there was always four or five lyric writers on those songs. He was younger than the other guys. He lived at home with his mother and father. He didn't really hang out with us. And he was very, very jealous of Easy. And of course, he was jealous of the relationship between Easy and I. I think it's really because, you know, Jerry Heller, who was the manager at the time, was really um, loyal to Easy. You know, Easy was his guy. I just think he underestimated what we really meant to the whole success of Ruthless Records. And Easy, you know, was learning the business basically at the same time we were. Even though he's older, 
Dre and Yella knew the business a little bit more, but nobody was experts, you know. People leaned on Jerry to, you know, make make things right. And it just was a, a, a you know, one or two things that just didn't smell right. And, you know, when somebody starts to lie when there's no reason to, it just makes you suspicious. You know, the more you look, the more you find. And, um, you know, I confronted them, and they rather, you know, make me the enemy and uh, instead of rectifying the situation, and so I left. But I think that the reason that he left was, look, we were with Brian Turner at Priority. Brian Turner and Pat Charbonnet kept telling him that he should be a solo artist. And while I don't blame Brian Turner, although I blamed him for a while, I don't blame him for that. He enabled Ice Cube to pursue a solo career. Actually, the next album on our schedule was going to be an Ice Cube solo record. But really, Easy and Dre made those decisions. Easy conceptualized, and Dre musicalized. I financialized. Just for the sake of poetry, I always said that, that Ice Cube verbalized. But, um, you know, that was Dre's decision. I could never get Dre to do a second record with Michelet. Her first record sold millions of copies, and it was the first R&B record ever done to hip-hop tracks. And I could never get him to do another record with her. So, I, you know, Dr. Dre was his own man, and <clears throat> he did things that kept him interested. And what he was interested in at that time was doing uh, an album with one of the most prolific of the Ruthless Writers, the DOC. I still think the DOC is probably the greatest pure rapper that ever lived. Again, we're in 1989, and NWA is coming off their classic debut album. One of the main writers and performers was no longer in the group. And to add misery to the situation, the DOC, who had only a few months earlier released his platinum debut classic album, was driving late at night and fell asleep at the wheel and crashed his car, causing serious damage to his larynx and ruining his pristine voice forever. This was a huge blow to him personally, but also to Ruthless. The DOC was destined to be one of the greats. At this time, the DOC's manager was a former bodyguard slash former college football player named Suge Knight, who would start to look into the DOC's contract. And it's interesting because Jerry Heller has an opinion about when Suge Knight started to get involved with members of NWA and Ruthless Records. Suge Knight, to me, marked the end of fun in hip-hop. Before that, it was fun. We all had fun. After Suge Knight got involved, there was no more fun. There were guys sitting in our office with Uzis 24 hours a day. He changed the entire complexion of what was happening at Ruthless. More on Suge later. But you can see how rather quickly things are starting to fall apart for the Ruthless Records team. Now, the parent label of Ruthless Records, Priority Records, immediately signed Ice Cube to a solo contract. So now Cube was starting to figure out, how am I going to put this album together? And he assumed he could work with Dr. Dre, but he was prohibited contractually from not having the talents of Dr. Dre to work on this project. So he buys a one-way ticket to New York City and asks the Bomb Squad, who were the hottest producers on the East Coast and the principal producers behind Public Enemy's project, to produce his album. It was risky for Cube. All eyes were on him in this moment. When I did that album in 1990, I was under a lot of pressure because I left the world's most dangerous group, N.W.A., 
and ended up trying to figure out how am I gonna get my solo record produced. Being naive, I thought Dr. Dre would be able to do it. I thought we'd be able to, to separate business from pleasure. But uh, Dre, he really couldn't do that. Even though he wanted to, Rufus was like, no, that, that ain't gonna happen. Kane has. So when I wanted to get my record produced, I actually was looking for this producer by the name of Sam Seven. So Leon Corn told me to come out to Def Jam and meet with Sam. That motherfucker didn't show up. Thank you for not showing up, Sam. It's all love. I'm leaving Leon Corn office after about an hour and a half, and here come Chuck D up the hall. He like, yo, what you doing here? I told him, yo, I just broke up with the group. I'm trying to get my solo shit done. Chuck was like, yo, come up to Green Street. I got Big Daddy Kane, and we got this record called Burn Hollywood Burn. You should jump on it because this is gonna be your first solo appearance. Let people know what it is. So I'm like, bet, shit, man, come on, man. Uh, I start telling Hank Shockley, Keith Shockley, Eric Vietnam Sadler, I'm telling them my dilemma. And since me and NWA, we had the same associates, when they heard I was coming to New York, they laughed. They was like, yo, that shit gonna be whack. When I told this to Hank Shockley, he got a look in his eye. He was like, yo, we wanna produce some of them tracks, yo. I'm like, how many? He was like, everything. We wanna produce the whole motherfucker. Here's Hank Shockley from the Bomb Squad. Working with Ice Cube in America's Most Wanted was a great process. He said, I'm buying a one-way ticket and I'm not going here until I get an album. He showed me like nine or 10 composition notebooks of rhymes. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, he, he writes. So he came with all this information. This record had to be different from a PE record, but and it had to echo the vibration and feelings of Los Angeles. And when you when you think about Compton, you think about, you know, South Central, those guys got their own flow, their own feeling, their own vibration. So for me it was about putting together the team that was gonna best represent that sound for Ice Cube. And Ice Cube had his own vision in his own direction because he brought his he brought his cousin Jinx out to also help with shaping the idea so it didn't go off track. On May 26, 1990, Ice Cube releases his debut solo album, America's Most Wanted. And the response was very positive. The album was an instant hit. What's your name? And even if you've never heard of him, your kids have. His first solo album, America's Most Wanted, has sold over one million copies, and that's just by word of mouth. The radio stations won't play it. Too vulgar, too angry, too violent. Ice Cube sees himself as a social commentator. His music is a chronicle of the killings and the drugs and the poverty in parts of black America. I like to show the black community, you know, I like to hold a mirror up to them and say, look what you're doing. Look, how can you get yourself out of this situation or do you want to get yourself out of this situation? All you motherfuckers in Houston is most wanted. You sing a lot about violence in the community. Yeah. You've seen violence firsthand? Yeah, it's like, out of all the kids I grew up with, at least 13 of them are dead. And that's before they even reach 21. You know, I'm, I just turned 21, so... You know, I, I thank God that I've reached 21. It's like a war on black young male with baseball cap and t-shirt. I'm an endangered species myself. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. 
So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On America's Most Wanted, there was no mention of NWA or any of the members or the situation Ice Cube had just come out of. Ice Cube's beef, and he will tell you, was always with Jerry Heller, and he kept things cool with the rest of the group, including Easy. Of course, Easy and Jerry thought that he would fail without them, but more importantly, without Dre. So with this major success of America's Most Wanted, now the pressure shifts back to NWA. It's already been two years since the Straight Outta Compton album. And on August 14th, 1990, exactly three months after Ice Cube's solo project, NWA releases an EP, 100 Miles and Running. Okay, the new record is Ship Go. This is my man EZ right here. Yo, what's up? It's my homeboy. The first day the record came out, it was gold. It shipped like 600,000 copies. It's moving on platinum right now. And that's only the single. Wait until the album comes out. It's an EP. Oh, the EP, the EP. Wait until the album comes out. It's going to be wild and crazier than ever. This new album, 100 Miles and Running, was the first time N.W.A. would take shots at Ice Cube. Yeah, they dissed me on a record called 100 Miles and Running. It was like an EP they released after Straight Outta Compton. It was a diss, but it wasn't like heavy-handed. It was like a line. I gave it back to him a little bit on Jacket for Beats. At the end of Jacket for Beats, it's one line where I mentioned... 100 miles and running. I'll have you 100 miles and running. And so when they did uh, their next record, they dissed me real good. You know what I mean? They, they called me Benedict <laughs> Arnold, all kind of names. Because I still like them dudes. You know, I had a problem with e- Easy and Jerry, but I'm still cool with Dre and Yella and Ren. I was just surprised that they would, like, take it to The following spring, N.W.A. makes history, releasing their follow-up album to Straight Outta Compton. This one is where they pushed the envelope even further by naming the album Niggas for Life. The album debuts at number one, and for the first time in U.S. history, the number one album in America's title featured a slur. Reaction to this album was massive, both commercially and politically. World's most dangerous rap band, and they call their number one album Niggas for Life. If you consider that offensive, brace yourself. You may be in for a shock. They're straight out of Compton, California, the self-proclaimed world's most dangerous rap band. Certainly, N.W.A. never thought they'd find themselves where they are, pop stars. If we would have cleaned it up, we would have been, we would have debuted it, probably 200, 190, something like that. But you know, we don't clean, we ain't changing our style for nobody. N.W.A.'s sudden success brings with it a lot of controversy, like the fact that radio programmers all across the country can't find one single track to play that doesn't have explicit language, so they're just not playing it. This is the number one album in the United States. And uh, as I looked at it uh, and I talked to the gentleman from Billboard, he said this is the filthiest album ever in the history of the Billboard charts to go to number one. It was almost like it was two albums in one, like two totally different type of albums. The first half felt like straight out of Compton. But the second half of the album, and that was the part that drew a lot of attention, was condemned by many prominent critics on their treatment and portrayal of women, including a skit where they murder a woman nonchalantly who rebuffed their advances. I'm just wondering why you decided to put that on the album. Did you have any thoughts? 
doubts about putting no, that on? Drayden came up with that, and they were just talking about, I guess, the bitches that they just leave alone or whatever the fuck they go. I really didn't have too much to do about that. I just said what I had to say at the end, how I yeah. felt about bitches. You yeah, know? <laughs> but it's the violence against women that seems to be a, a big issue. You know, a lot of women are saying, you know, that men are going to go out and do that. They're going to take it seriously. They're going to take it literally. Not from the record. I mean, you only do what you want to do. It's like they say, our records promote gun violence yeah. and start people to doing this. No record don't make you go out and do nothing. You make yourself go out and do that. What about the way you treat women? You know, there's one way depicted on the record. The way we treat record. women? The way you personally I, we, I, treat I love women. We never mention nothing about women. We always mention stuff about bitches. We're not putting down no women. See, that's what everybody get wrong. Say, number one, we don't talk about women. We talk about bitches. It's yeah. a difference. Yeah. You know, that's why we did a song called A Bitch is a Bitch to let them know what we're talking about. We're not talking about yeah. women. We're talking about bitches. Throughout the Nigga for Life album, they take shots at Ice Cube. Now, because they were all similarly on priority, they all would hear each other's songs before they would be released. So Cube... Heard the album and the disses in advance and seethed. I was on a boat there. One of the heads of Priority Records, he took me on a boat because, you know, I had went in there with a bat and, and like, tore up the, the company. So um, we, we was trying to smooth things out. So he was saying, I want to play this for you. I want to be the first one to play it for you. Uh, and he played me the disc that they did to me. But we still had two or three hours on this boat, which I didn't want to be on no more. I was like, man, take me back. So by the time I got to my room, to my equipment, pen and pad, it just all came out. Ice Cube really couldn't have been that angry because that was a summer that really changed his life and catapulted his career. You see, he would star in John Singleton's first feature film, Boys in the Hood. The irony of a song that Ice Cube wrote would turn into a movie that he would star in. Boys in the Hood, which similar to N.W.A., painted the actual picture of life in South Central. We heard the music from N.W.A., but now you get a real chance to see it. It was a critical and commercial success with a cast that featured the legendary Angela Bassett, Lawrence Fishburne and Cuba Gooden Jr. The movie earned two Oscar nominations. John Singleton was only 21 years old and became the youngest and first African-American to be nominated for Best Director. Q became even a bigger star. And later that year, on October 29th, 1991, Ice Cube releases his sophomore album, Death Certificate. And this was his moment to respond to N.W.A. Remember, he was cool with everybody. He never said nothing in the first album, but then they took shots at him after that. And on this album was the diss track, No Vaseline, where he obliterates N.W.A., Eazy-E, and Jerry Heller. Considered one of the greatest diss records in the history of hip-hop, that was the end of their beef. You know, there's an interesting scene in Straight Outta Compton when they are hearing the song and the group is in a space and they're listening to the song. And you could tell in that moment, the actors did a great job, like, they knew that they couldn't come back from that. Ice Cube was just such an amazing MC, and he hit them so hard, and there was nothing they could do about it. And it must have been so bad because they really didn't respond after that. 
And in retrospect of their career in general, it was also the proverbial death certificate for the group. As the producer, the creative mind around the group, Dr. Dre, would leave Ruthless Records after Niggas for Life and NWA to form his own company, Death Row Records, with Suge Knight. Yeah, NWA is no more as far as I'm concerned, you know, unless it's on Death Row. Mm-hmm. That's it. Now, what exactly, you know, happened? Was it just personal differences with a certain member or? Yeah, um, if you're not getting treated right in the place, you're not going to stay there, you know. That's all that was. I guess they didn't respect my talent, <laughs> you know. So now they're suffering the consequences. Easy, you're dropping like a brick, boy. See ya. <laughs> On the album, you you know, you talk about Easy, you talk about Jerry Heller. You know, what are, when you say they don't respect your talent, what exactly, you know, do you mean? I mean, I guess they took advantage of me not knowing the record business back in the day. But, you know, I know what's up with those numbers now. Take me back to Dre and D.O.C. This is um, N.W.A. They're signed to Ruthless Records. This is just before Death Row. The story is that you got <clears throat> Dre and D.O.C. out of their Ruthless Records deal. And right. what I read, uh, they were handed over, no money exchanged. How did right. you pull that one? When I got involved in the music business, Dr. D.O.C. was a friend of mine. Right. And the guy had um, a tragic, it was an accident. He was going home from one of his videos. He fell asleep. It was, he was in the high of prayer. Little, he got blew out the direction of the windshield of the car from the back. Right. Everything else came back except for his voice. So the guy ended up talking like Donald Duck. So I said, well, look, one thing you can count on that, you write songs. You don't wrote X amount of songs for Easy. You don't wrote X amount of songs for NWA. That's worth a lot of money to right. So I you- go into Doc's contract, and he sold his songs for a $100 watch, a $150 chain. So what I seen, I've never seen anything like it in the world. Right. So when I went to go get Doc's situation squared away, that's when Dre came. Right. Dre said, well, look, I'm not really from Compton. Everybody used you against me. He said, I'm over here, ruthless, and I got this, this deal that for a bonus, if I do two records, I'll probably get a swimming pool in my backyard. Right. I said, that's got to be crazy. What your, what your contract says? He said, I've never seen a contract. Right. I signed something, I've never seen it. I said, we got to get your contracts. So they gave him the runaround, told me he couldn't have his contract. The lawyers told me he couldn't have his contract, but the lawyer was a record company lawyer. Right. So I went to the lawyer, I went to the record company, I said, okay, you got to give Dre his contract. Actually, got to give it to me. I told him I got to give Dre's contract, not now, but right now. Right. So after I got his contract, I read and I seen that the guy was only getting one point, two points, and it was cross-collateralizing everything. Right. Even though he was a producer, along with Yellow, if J.J. Fad go in the hole, right. he got to pay for it. Right. So it's no way, if he, if he produced and worked for 20 years, he wouldn't have never seen any money. He was always been um, recouped. This was a seismic change in the music business. However, Dr. Dre was still under contract as a producer and an artist to Ruthless because remember, he signed those contracts, the ones he never read. What happened was I got Dre. Right. And starting a label, they wanted to name the label Future Shock. Right. The original name before Death Row. Right. Right. So it was Future Shock. Okay. That was was just a name they kicked around. And I wanted to go Death Row. There was a guy that had a Death Row, but he spelled it like Death Jam. Right. I'm like, you know, no offense, but, you know, we're from the ghetto. So if we're going to say death row, it'd be the real death row, the man in the chair, in my home, but he got out of prison. So he drew the logo for us. Right. We had to come up with the first album, which at that time, everybody was in the neighborhoods, everybody was smoking on the chronic. That's how we came up with the name, the chronic. 
when we started working on the album, Dre didn't want to be an artist because he always been a producer. producer right? And I had to go in there and sell something. You know, if you're going to go get major distribution, you just can't go in there and say, hey, I got Joe Blow, and people going to say, okay, right. let's put it out. But they knew him from NWA, right? They from knew him from NWA. But it was a hard challenge at first because he wasn't known as a rapper. It was easy, it was right. cute, and then it was a third player, which was Ren. Right. So I had to sell these guys on... Andre coming out from behind the board. Board and said he can do both. This is the the foundation of Death Row. The bottom line was, Dre's biggest issue in this moment was that Eazy-E controlled his career. It may have been a bad contract at Ruthless, but he signed it, and Suge tried to physically strong-arm Eazy by roughing him up and saying that they had Jerry Heller and his mama hostage and forced him to sign this paperwork. It was all a lie. Now, Easy signed the paperwork because he was under duress, but it was not bound legally. And Easy E was furious. Now, keep in mind, Easy is from the streets and was a hustler before he became a music executive. He was not happy at what was going on, and things were about to take an even more violent turn. Shug tried to destroy my record company with the help of others, Dre. So right now we're getting everything back together and we finna come out, you know, fully loaded. Easy was pissed off at Suge for taking Dre. It was much money and energy and work that Easy put into starting Ruthless and making a success, you know, like that. It was, you know, kind of gone. Easy wanted to kill Suge himself. He just wanted to kill Suge. And Jerry talked him out of it. Handcuffed and sitting on some amazing musical projects produced by Dr. Dre, Suge went to Jimmy Iovine, who went to Jerry Heller, and they worked out a deal. Jimmy called me and he said, listen, Jerry, I will never buy a lawsuit with you, but I feel that Dre will never record for you again. I thought that was true, so I discussed it with Eric, and I said, listen, Eric, you know, Interscope wants to make a deal with for us with Dre, and I believe Jimmy when he says that Dre is will never do anything for us again. So I did what I could to maintain and preserve the integrity of the of Dr. Dre, which was the assets that asset that we owned, that we then sold to the Interscope, and of course, the, you know, it made Interscope what it is today, and certainly has been okay for Dre too, since he is a billionaire. Just a side observation: notice how Jerry talks about Dr. Dre, calling him an asset. So they work out a deal. Dre is now free to produce and do whatever he wants with Death Row. However, Easy e and Ruthless would get a third of any music Dre would make for the next six years. It was bittersweet for Dre. He was technically free from Easy, but tethered financially. Meanwhile, creatively, Dre was on another level as he had started to put projects together. The first being the soundtrack for the film Deep Cover, starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jeff Goldblum, and Clarence Williams III. Y'all might know Clarence Williams III. He played Prince's father in Purple Rain. Deep Cover was a really good movie, and Dr. Dre was in charge of the soundtrack. It was a title track of this soundtrack that would be the first time the world would hear this skinny kid from Long Beach, California named Snoop Dogg. Deep Cover was Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg going back and forth on this powerful, clean, amazing Dre beat. This was a great sign for Dr. Dre. He clearly still was that guy. And for the rest of 1992, he would work on his debut album, The Chronic. 
And on December 15th, 1992, and I never forget this because it was a couple of days after my birthday and it was right before the holidays and we really didn't know what to expect and we really weren't really understanding what was about to happen but an album would come out that would be so massive and so unexpected and it would change hip-hop forever and check it regardless of the deal that suge and jimmy Iveen cut with jerry heller and easy e Dr. Dre did not waste any time taking shots at Eazy-E, especially in the song Dre Day. And in the video for Dre Day, which became a big hit song on the radio, he casted an Eazy-E lookalike actor that they chase around and harass. The Chronic went on to sell 3 million copies, setting up Snoop Dogg to have the most highly anticipated hip-hop album of all time. And there's been a lot of anticipated hip-hop albums. I've been in this business from day one. But I got to tell you, after the chronic, the anticipation level for Snoop Dogg and that album was something that I had never seen before. And to this day, there's been some anticipated albums, but nothing like Doggy Style, the wait for Doggy Style and not just the anticipation of it, but something was happening. It was a gravity shift. It was it was a change happening. And Dre was on to something with the chronic. So. This next album is going to be like even bigger and more amazing. I mean, that's all you thought about in music. The following fall of 1993, finally, because it was some delays and stuff there. And oh, by the way, Snoop was on trial for murder. There was a situation where he got into with somebody else and that other person died and Snoop was arrested and he was literally on trial for murder. So there was a little of that going on doggy style comes out it lives up to the hype and goes on to sell four million copies so death row was definitely with dr dre as the production mastermind was the it label and the place that everybody was focusing on in hip-hop now remember ruthless just a few years earlier was that same label and in this moment the era of ruthless records had waned I mean, think about it. Ice Cube left, then Dre. Shoot, even Ren, who stayed on Ruthless Records and put out albums at the time, had beef with Easy. What's your relationship with uh, Ice Cube and uh, Dr. Dre? Or do you have any relationship with them? Yeah, we cool. Me, Cube, and Dre, we all cool. You know okay. what I'm saying? It's just, I don't talk to Eric. Like, you know what I'm saying? We don't talk. Uh-huh. You know, we got a little beef or whatever, but, you know, it ain't nothing that we can't You and EZ? So, yeah, but it ain't like nothing that I want to, like, I'm trying to use. I'm going out pumping. Like, me and Eric got beef, you know? Uh-huh. It's, it's something under the table. Easy e was not going to sit back and allow this to happen. So he then came back at Dre Musically. Uh, you had uh, Dre on your label at one time? Or uh, was he with you? He was an NWA. Okay. And he was a producer okay. for Ruthless Records. All right. So Snoop Dogg was never with you? Uh, no, he was never with me. I know that you're very short on those, on those two <laughs> those two names. You have very little to say. I talk about them all day. I mean, you know, I make money from Dre and Snoop, so mm-hmm. it don't matter. Okay. It's all good. Have, have you and Dre have ran into each other on one-on-one? Yeah, Dre stays right around the corner from me. But when he sees me, he ducks his head. Because he's scared to face me. Why? Because he's screwed up. Oh, somebody put him up to that. 
See, Dre now works for somebody that used to work for him. And how he claims that Death Row is his, it's somebody else. It's a bodyguard that used to work for Dre. Mm-hmm. Dre now works for him. So he all screwed up. Leave Easy's album and come over here. Come over and then here, it was dude. like a little threatening and a little everything. It got kind of serious. Mm-hmm. Where it got so serious with Dre, owed these people so much money that he burnt his house down. He ended up getting shot because he owed money and he got nothing but problems. You see all the other problems he's having now. On the road, they canceled his tour. and They stole a van possibly uh, in Milwaukee mm-hmm. when they was on the road. I guess they jacked the van drivers for the van. And then uh, Snoop was involved in a drive-by shooting. He out on bail right now. But hey, good luck, brother. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It was also around this time where Easy severed his partnership with Priority Records and went with Sony and Relativity Records. And, and part of that was because of Ice Cube clearly because they were under the same label, but he would release new music on a new label and respond to Dre Day with his 1993 single, Real Motherfucking G's. It was around this time that I interviewed Eazy-E for the first time and we discussed his label transition away from Priority to Sony. Priority was, it happened to be the split of the group, NWA, because uh, they was interfering in contractual agreements. So they were trying to split y'all up? Yeah, basically they... They did. Well, I mean, they didn't put y'all up, but... So, there was a pain, you know, like trying to pay Dre under the table, mm-hmm. trying to get Ice Cube to split up, and, you know, everybody, you know. It was also around this time that Easy e finally realized the damage caused by Jerry Heller, his partner, and severed ties with him. Now, after all the allegations against him, Jerry Heller remained steadfast that he did nothing wrong. Nobody ever sued, so obviously they were just using it as an excuse in Compton or wherever to say, you know, we got rid of the white guy, you know, because, you know, he was helping Easy Steel or whatever. But, you know, it's uh, nobody ever sued me and nobody ever sued him. So obviously it was all bullshit. Easy E shifted Ruthless Records from priority distribution to Sony through a label called Relativity Records. And Relativity Records at that time had Fat Joe, had Common, had the Beat Nuts, had a rapper Chi Ali. Easy would continue to sign numerous artists with the mentality of throwing a whole bunch of music out and seeing what would stick. And in that process, he would sign a group of rappers from Cleveland, Ohio, who were unique in their sound and style and who would ultimately be the biggest success of Easy's career, Bone Thugs and Harmony. They would release an EP in 1994, Creeping on a Come Up, and a full album in 1995, going on to be one of the most successful hip-hop groups of all time, selling over a staggering 50 million records. It was well documented in his circle 
that Easy has serious asthma issues all his life and would usually have bronchitis a few times a year. In 1994, he seemed to be sick all the time, according to people around him. Everyone would notice him coughing a lot. This was a few years after Magic Johnson's stunning announcement that he was HIV positive. After Magic Johnson's announcement, HIV and AIDS was something that folks would be discussing a lot because simultaneously, while HIV rates were increasing within the African-American community and fastest among Black women, this was personal to me. I lost my older brother to AIDS in 1991. I remember every aspect of this from his diagnosis to just kind of watching him decline. And I stood by him when he took his last breath. And it really shook up my family. And one of the vivid memories I have of that time was um, we were living in Harlem and there was basically a hospital ward that they turned into an AIDS hospice. And it was full of young black and Latino men and women. And at that time, when we were hearing about AIDS, it was, at least for me, this was before, right before Maggie Johnson announced. So this was in the spring of 91. Maggie Johnson announced in the fall of 91. But I looked around and I was like, wow, you know, the way that AIDS was sort of presented was that it was sort of a gay disease and more of a white male gay disease. But when I looked around this hospice, I was like, wow, I was blown away. Like all these young black and Hispanic people. So it was something that, you know, kind of, always stayed in my mind and remember how this affected my family. And I ended up dedicating a lot of time and resources to HIV awareness to combat the increased infection rates within the African-American community. And on February 24th, 1995, Eazy-E was admitted to the hospital with a violent cough. The doctors did some tests and revealed shocking news. Tonight, the 31-year-old rap artist is hospitalized in Los Angeles in critical condition. He was admitted three weeks ago, complaining of breathing problems, apparently unaware he had been infected with the AIDS virus. Wright issued a statement through his attorney. I would like to turn my own problem into something good that will reach out to all my homeboys. It be a big loss of rap for anyone to go out like this, uh, despite anyone's thoughts, you know, it's a terrible thing, I think. I never thought he would have AIDS. Now, I just want y'all to understand in this moment, there wasn't social media, which I'm sure if it was social media, it would have been a much different thing. But most folks were still shocked about Magic Johnson. Uh, and I And if you listen to my Tribe Called Quest podcast, uh, there's a part in the episode where Fife Dog found out that Magic Johnson had HIV and he started crying because it was just sort of like anybody that would have HIV, AIDS, like for most people, they thought they were going to die. And so like the Magic Johnson thing was like one thing, but then Easy e really hit close to home because Easy e was like everybody else in hip hop. And Folks just did not see this coming. Not that you would see it coming because people are walking around right now in your life and you have no idea the things that they're going through. You just don't. During this period where he was really sick was when he was cultivating Bone Thugs and Harmony and they were working closely together and they had no idea what was going on. Did you know he was HIV positive? No, we never knew. He must, you know, he kept his business to himself, I guess. We never knew he was HIV positive. Letting people know what's real that can happen to you. So... You know what I'm saying? I guess he's making it 
a negative thing more positive than it could than just what it could be just like magic johnson when he called it you know he just got a like figures that's out there like people that's out there that a lot of people you know like role models i guess you can say when stuff like this happen they just need to come out and speak and let other people aware of it so you know what i'm saying we can try to contain this stuff because it's getting bad easy was not sure how he contracted hiv but thankfully the women he was involved in and the children during this time were all okay and it was around this moment when he found out that he was hiv positive that he married tamika who would then take over the ruthless record label in his absence. Ice Cube and Dre would come to visit him in the hospital, and it had been reported that they had all talked about doing music together again once Jerry Heller was out the picture. But a few weeks later, on March 26, 1995, Easy will be gone. Rapper Easy E has died in Los Angeles after a battle with AIDS. Easy E, whose real name was Eric White, was a member of the group NWA, which helped popularize harsh inner city rap music. Wright only learned he had AIDS after being hospitalized last month because of some breathing problems. Wright was 31. Eric Wright would leave behind a wife, Tamika, and eight children. As we continue to celebrate hip hop's 50th year, I wanted to do this podcast because I really felt like the story of Eazy-E and everything that happened out of the West Coast started a cultural change in music that really created such a long legacy of artists and incredible music and films. NWA not only changed music, but we changed pop culture all over the world because we made it all right for artists to be themselves. You know, you didn't have to be squeaky clean to be just as big or bigger than the squeaky clean artists. You know, it was artists out there who wasn't being themselves, you know, on record. There was all these nice guys behind the scenes. You know what I mean? They was thugged out. So we was like, yo, we're going to be ourselves no matter what. On record, off record, we're going to be ourselves and let the chips fall where they may. And I think it opened the floodgates for artists who wanted to walk on this side and to to be a little raw, right. you know, and not be so squeaky clean. I worry about being on the radio. Yeah, you know, shit, all you know these I mean? worries that artists used to hold on to them because it was no other avenues, it was no other examples of a person not doing it the square way and being successful. And and here we come as the example, not only for musicians, but for all artists. You know, it wouldn't be, you know, shows like South Park and, yeah, 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 and all yeah. these shows where, even the reality shows where they bleeping and all that, we started that on the radio, bleeping words out. But the rawness wasn't in the world until NWA said it was okay for you to be yourself. Dr. Dre's time with Death Row, although very successful and with numerous massive projects, looked great on the outside, but internally, under the leadership of Suge Knight, there was a serious culture of violence and nonstop drama, including an East Coast-West Coast war, which was basically started by Suge at the Source Awards in New York City. I was there. I'll never forget that moment. It just, the sense of uh, Suge being on stage and kind of being lightweight disrespectful to the East Coast in the East Coast house and taking a shot at Puff, which dramatically changed the energy of hip-hop. What is not talked about about the East Coast, West Coast, was how many people died during that time over nothing. I mean, it really was stupid when you think about it, but there were actual people who died over this. The death row offices were often full of gang members, 
there will be gambling and other illegal activities happening in the office constantly. On numerous occasions, Suge Knight will react violently and face several criminal cases himself and literally went to jail for assaulting people over minor things. But Suge was really tied into making Death Row a greater impacting label than anything else that we had ever saw. I mean, he was signed and incarcerated Tupac. Now, Tupac, who was on Interscope, had some success. And then everybody kind of abandoned him when he got shot and he went to jail. But Suge sort of like kept in touch with him. And it was a moment where Pac's mom was about to lose her house and Suge came to the rescue. So Suge signs Pac in jail, gets him out on bail. In 1995, Pac would release several popular albums. Tupac and Dre would record the timeless song California Love a year after Easy es death. Dr. Dre, who had been through so much in these business partnerships, decided to walk away from Suge with nothing and start his own company that he owns and operates. And he named it Aftermath. I'm here to make money, you know, and that's all I'm in this for. Get pissed off if you want to. I don't consider myself no gangster or nothing like that. I'm in here to make money, you know. I ain't gonna let nobody step to me because I'm gonna knock them out. Making records is my job. Anybody else that got anything to say about it or um, beneath me, you know what I'm saying? I like kicking it with the honeys. I love being around women. That's my thing. I love being around women. I love spending money. I like making money. I like kicking it with the homies. Get the homies up. We all chill. Everything is positive. Nobody's causing no problems. And we can chill, get drunk, get out or whatever. And we straight. That's me. All that other stuff, you know, shooting at a, another person that looks like me or fighting with somebody that looks like me, the same type of skin that I have, I ain't with that, you know? And that's that's Dre. Let me rewind a little bit. Based on what happened between Eazy-E and Suge Knight, Eazy said this about Dre when he left Ruthless for Death Row a few years before. See, Dre now works for somebody that used to work for him. And how he claims that Death Row is his, it's somebody else. It's a bodyguard that used to work for Dre. Mm -hmm. Dre now works for him. So he all screwed up. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Aftermath ended up being the greatest success in Dr. Dre's career. He signed Eminem, who was considered one of the greatest MCs ever, who sold a staggering 220 million records. Dre would release the follow-up to The Chronic seven years later, Chronic 2001, which came out in 1999 and would go on to sell 8 million copies. He would then sign 50 Cent through Eminem's shady label, which is all under Aftermath, and 50 Cent would sell over 30 million albums, and he would sign Kendrick Lamar, who would go on to sell 10 million albums. Dr. Dre, along with Jimmy Iovine, would launch Beats Headphones and would become hip-hop's first billionaire. So life was good for Dre after death row. 
As for his former label, Death Row, after Dre left, tensions would rise internally. Tupac would be killed as he rode along with Suge on a Las Vegas strip in September of 1996. Side note about Tupac, and again, a lot of people never talk about this. He was incarcerated in 1995. Suge showed up and posted his bail. And upon release, was relentless in his anger and rage towards Biggie and Puff, again, fueling his East Coast, West Coast beef. He recorded hundreds of songs and was dead within a year. That's insane. It's like he did a deal with the devil, which a lot of people say is the deal that he did with Suge in jail. Snoop Dogg would also leave death row. By the way, Snoop Dogg had a follow-up album to Doggy Style, which was awful and didn't do anything near Doggy Style. And he would sign with Master P's label. Master P went to Suge and released Snoop on his label. Death Row was basically dead. As of this recording, Suge is serving a 28-year sentence for manslaughter. He was in his car on the set of Straight Outta Compton while they were filming the movie and got into some altercation with two men and ran them over. One of those men died. Suge would file bankruptcy and lose the entire Death Row catalog. Snoop Dogg would eventually buy the Death Row catalog and currently owns it. Artists got to do it how they feel it. Yeah. You know, they shouldn't do it how they think they should do it. They shouldn't do it how they think the people want them to do it. They should do it how they feel it and go from there. And you'll always be happy and satisfied. You know, um, hip hop and, and, and the artists got so focused on results. What my record sell? What, what is this? That ain't got nothing to do with you creating the music. Yeah, it has nothing to do. We, you know, when we started this thing, it's not for the money it's for the music it's for the love of the music and if you treat her right she's gonna treat you right the minute you come in this thing and you're in it to make money yeah your time is limited in this motherfucker man think about when we started it was no money we went in there and made what we want to do f the police you know whatever we wanted to do what was the model they like it great if they don't like if you got everybody trying to be the same that turned me off as an MC. Right. Like, I like, yeah, I like people that's different, creative, and bring something new to the game. Yeah. Just like when we came in, we brought something new to the game. You know what I mean? And that's how it popped off like that. Doesn't this feel like a movie? All of the things that I just talked about, regardless of Straight Outta Compton, that was a movie and that we all saw. But when you take a step back and listen to all of these things that happened, it's quite amazing. And it's a real interesting legacy for Eze, for all of this stuff that occurred from just his one idea to where we are today. And NWA will always forever have an impact on not just hip hop artists, but all artists. Thank you for listening to the Backstory Podcast. Coming up on the next episode, I'll share my classic interviews with Ice Cube. We shot that movie in 20 days, which is a trip. You know, Hollywood using movies not shot that quick. We was under the gun. We only had like $2 million, which, which it, you know, in Hollywood, that's a small budget, right. real small budget, right. you know. Uh, we felt like we had something that uh, that, that hasn't, hadn't been shown. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we saw boys in the hood, we saw menace to society, but we, we didn't really see, like, the fun part of us growing up. Easy E. Why is it, though, that 
Drain Ice Cube. Well, we'll start off with Ice Cube. When Ice Cube, when Ice Cube left the group, you guys had like a lot of bad feelings. What was the situation with no, you? No, we didn't have no bad feelings. I don't know what it was. Okay, because you had the Benedict Arnold thing, and then we had the whole uh, yeah. out on Beach album. What else was, like, was that? Just to sell albums or something like that? I'm not a little really. hype. We're just, we're just going at it. MC Ren, do you think NWA will ever get back together? If we do, it'll be me, Dre, and Eric. I mean, me, not me, Dre, and Eric. <laughs> me, Dre, and O'Shea. Me, Dre, and Q. And I'll share a few days after Easy died on my show, I did sort of a tribute to Easy E, and I'll share that as well. Again, thank you so much for supporting the Backstory Podcast as we continue to celebrate hip hop's 50th anniversary. Would love some feedback. Let me know what you think on social media, on Instagram and threads at get the backstory at official Colby Cole. Would love to hear from you. The backstory podcast with Colby Cole is an urban one incorporated reach media pod is good production hosted and executive produced by yours. Truly Colby Cole edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at backstory PCC on Instagram. Get the backstory. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.